Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, adapters. On today's very special episode, we have CNN's John Sutter. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Hey there, welcome back, adapters. You adapt, we adapt, America adapts. So, on today's episode, we have two segments. We have our normal main segment where I have an interview with CNN's John Sutter. I'm very excited about this podcast. I had this incredible conversation with John. He's he's this invest he's this reporter at CNN and he's with CNN Digital and he has a climate change program on CNN called 2 Degrees and we just had the most amazing conversation. He's done some amazing reporting, is an award-winning reporter. He did a really cool piece out in Oklahoma last year and so he he went there and he talked to a lot of folks and he was talking to climate skeptics and it was really funny. It was a really informative piece, and we have just an amazing conversation about how to cover climate change and sometimes in a hostile environment, but just learning from people how you report on these issues. And there's a lot of science communication that that you know I learn from from talking to John. I just I, it, it was an amazing conversation, and just excited that he's out there doing what he's doing. And in the second part of the conversation, I actually have just sort of a a post conversation with Tim Watkins and Tim listened to the podcast with John Sutter and he just talks about some of the issues that were brought up and we kind of dive a little bit deeper into into some of the issues that really stood out for Tim and I think it's really interesting on on what Tim thought about the conversation and so there's two parts to this podcast today let me just get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to write a review to the podcast. Again, I say this every time. You've, you're sitting there with your phone. Open it up. If it's on iTunes, there's that option. Just click write a review. And even if you're looking at the links on on this website, yeah, please. It would be much appreciated. Write a review for the podcast. Also, there's a Facebook community group and a Facebook page in the community group. And more and more people are joining this and they're sharing links or they're just weighing in on information that I'm posting there. And it's a little more lively than your typical Facebook page. So consider joining that. And I approve pretty much everyone who asks to join. So, yes, I'd love to hear you there. Also, upcoming guest for the podcast. Before we get started, I have Dr. Catherine Mock from Stanford Institute. I have Dr. Amy Brady who is going to be talking about cli-fi, climate science fiction. I've mentioned this before. I've known nothing about it, and she's given me some homework to read to get ready for it. I'm really excited that you know the, the field of climate change is expanding in all, all sectors. Also, this is just in. This is breaking, breaking news for America DAPS. I am just absolutely tickled that this is happening. I, I don't have a date, but I'm recording next week. But the publishing date, I, I still have to figure this out. But an upcoming guest for America Adapts is Bill McKibben of 350. Uh, but I'm just absolutely excited. We, um, If you know anything about climate change, you'll know about Bill McKibben and the amazing work that he's done at 350 and the, the work that he's done to just organize people around climate change. He has just been in the field forever, but he, he's just become really just one of the leading authorities on this issue and leading voices. And it, I'm just absolutely thrilled that I'm able to get him on the podcast. We're going to record that soon. And yeah, just kind of a funny story. I'm... 
sitting on my couch last week and I'm, I'm checking my email and then I get an email uh, from a Bill McKibben. So as you can imagine, I'm just a bit dumbfounded and, and I open it up and it just, it's just it's Bill saying, hey, I hear you're looking for me. And indeed I was, but I wasn't quite sure that I heard directly from Bill, but I did. So that's the sort of guy he is and just uh, very thrilled. And yeah, so Bill McKibben coming on the podcast very soon. And on that note, let's just get into the conversation with John. You, I think you're all going to love this conversation. And again, I, I love when I have feedback from you. I hear every week from different folks and just what you think of the podcast or if you have ideas for guests. I have a website at americadaps.org. Don't forget to check it out. There's a bit more information on me and on previous guests and links to ways of getting the podcast. And so, yeah, don't forget to check that out. And you can reach me at americaadapts at gmail.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. And so, again, I love hearing from you and ideas. And if you have questions for future guests, yeah, just let me know. Or you can do that on the Facebook page. And so, um, yeah, that is what kind of year it is. We're off and running. And it's going to be, in, I think, an amazing year of guest and um thanks again to all of you listeners so let's get started let's listen to john so uh i really hope you enjoy this episode hey adapters welcome back to america adapts climate change podcast i am your host doug parsons and on today's episode i think we have an amazing guest i'm very excited about this this is john sutter who is a reporter at cnn and john give me a second here now, I don't want to go through your entire bio, but you are an award-winning reporter, and you have just covered issues ranging from climate change, I think slavery, I think there's rape in Alaska. You have done all these incredible things, and you are, I don't even know what to call it, the owner and operator of Two Degrees, which is a digital program on CNN, which does focus on climate change. So welcome to the show, John. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so this podcast is all about climate change, and so it was. I, I just want to note that the reason you're here, which I think is kind of a cool story, is that at the end of each of my episodes, I ask for a recommendation of a future guest. And so a previous guest, famed climate change reporter Andy Revkin, said I should get you on. So I tracked you down, and so here you are. I know. I'm, I'm super flattered that he that he recommended me. He's a great journalist, and you know has done a lot to advance public understanding on this issue. So I'm very flattered by that and, and, and very happy to, to be here. I like what you do. Well, yeah, he didn't even pause in, in his recommendation because he, he, he was talking about the work that you did in Oklahoma. And I want to get into that later. And just, I guess, starting off, you're at CNN, which I think is super cool. And there's all sorts of questions related to that. But, you know, with President Trump in office now, there's this whole notion of CNN and fake news. And I just, I'm wondering what it's like to be a CNN reporter with that sort of hanging over your head i mean is it you guys kind of eye rolling there at cnn i mean what's 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 it like there i mean i think everyone has their own reaction to it but i think i think the the vibe overall is that you know we're just doing our, our jobs right and and that looks functionally a lot the same now as it did you know before under other administrations and you know fact checking is is part of that and, and all these things but you know I, I don't think anyone here we don't see ourselves as the you know as the opposition party or the enemy of the american public like you know all these things get get said about us and about other media organizations but you know we're we're just trying to to do our work and search for truth whatever that is convenient inconvenient <laughs> so it's it, it is for sure an interesting time in the media but we're just sort of putting our heads down and plowing ahead 
right? You know, on the one side, it's silly, it's almost funny, and it's ridiculous. But on the flip side, I mean, this this is serious business. You know, the president of the United States sort of saying this thing about news media, and so we appreciate what you guys are doing in in the media like that. So just know that. America out there. I think the real America appreciates it. So, <laughs> oh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm okay. Glad to get to be doing it. So, John, the I want to jump right into this, and you you have an interesting career, and I've been doing my homework on you, and I learned a few things. And just, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I want you to share this with with listeners and such, and so. You are at CNN, which is based in Atlanta. I used to live in Athens, Georgia, so spent a lot of time in Atlanta. Oh, nice. I worked for a cool. group called the Georgia Conservancy. I don't know if you crossed paths with them, and but I ended up in Atlanta a lot of times. But CNN was always there. It was a mainstay of, of Atlanta. and But you actually started off in Oklahoma, right? Yeah. Um, I, one of my first jobs out of school was at the, the Oklahoma and the, the newspaper in Oklahoma City. And I, you know, I wrote about a bunch of different stuff there. I covered local government for a while. I was on the mental health beat for a minute. And I ended up doing a lot of environmental stories there, which was which was against the grain in a a state that's run by oil and gas, you know, interests more or less and where people tend to be very sympathetic to to fossil fuel companies. One one of the big stories that, that I did there that really kind of consumed me during that time wasn't about it wasn't about um fossil fuels as much as just like a different kind of pollution. But I spent, I spent a long time writing about this former lead mining district uh, in the Northeast part of the state that became a, a super fun site. So like a federal toxic waste, you know, cleanup site. And wh- while I was there, there, the EPA was actually paying people to move out of the town because uh, it, it was perceived to be so dangerous because it was so dangerous. So I, I was kind of like documenting this exodus from this town. And I, um, I don't know. I think since then, I've, I've, I've always been captivated by place stories and especially places that are going through some, you know, environmental change, environmental injustice. And often, you know, the people caught up in the middle of that have nothing to do with causing it. So, you know, a lot of my work at CNN has been kind of along similar lines. But yeah, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, spent a lot of time there. And I, I like to think that that keeps one foot or, you know, one piece of my brain kind of in a part of the country that that tends to view you know, issues like climate change through a very different lens and filter than, you know, people might where I live in Atlanta or in a lot of other big cities where, you know, the debate about the science and the politics, frankly, has been seemed over for a long time. It's not. People still fight about this stuff in uh, in a lot of parts of the country. And I think, like, being sensitive to that is important while also acknowledging that we are causing this. It is bad. (laughs) And we do need to do something about it. But realizing that not everyone yeah, it sees it that way, I think is important. I was going to ask if you grew up in Oklahoma. It sounds like you did. And so I thought yeah. it was like a big shift to go to Atlanta, but you actually went to Emory, right? I saw that on on your LinkedIn page. You went to Emory. So you had your experience in in Atlanta for a while. Yeah, I, I was in, you know, I was in Atlanta for school. Um, then I did this short fellowship in Florida, and then I ended up at the Oklahoma. And then I, I kind of I bounced around a little bit. I, I interned and did some some work for this company that does uh, uh, kind of short nature focused films um, out of Madagascar. So I lived there for part of a year um, and then ended up back in, in Oklahoma and then got laid off because newspapers are all sort of sinking ships. <laughs> and although, you know, I love them and subscribe to a couple, um, uh, you know, and then after that, I ended up at, at, at CNN and, and I've been here about eight years. I actually started I think the day before, maybe two days before uh, Obama's inauguration. So, you know, I've 
been here a number of years and that that's taken a number of different roles as you mentioned i've reported on a bunch of different things but one kind of common thread in recent years is that i i I try to do stories that are driven by our audience so I, i did a project called change the list where people were actually voting on issues that they wanted me to go out into the world and cover and then the two degrees project that you mentioned that was kind of started in the lead up to the paris climate talks and the idea was to answer our readership's questions about climate change through reporting. So that story you mentioned that's about Oklahoma and about climate skepticism in Oklahoma came from a reader's question, you know, someone asking, many people asking me actually, like, you know, what's up with climate skepticism and why is it so persistent in the U.S. where it it hasn't been in some other countries, such as, you know, some of those in Europe, for example. So I, I I try to do a lot of work that has uh, that either starts with our audience or definitely has a feedback loop with them. I try to have it be more of a of a discussion and a conversation rather than me, this you know journalist sort of telling you stuff and then dropping the microphone and not and not listening and just you know saying what i what I think matters. So um, yeah, I, I guess people associate CNN with you know you're on TV and then you have those anchors. and so, Maybe you could just give a little bit of background. You know, I guess CNN is a lot more than that. And so you're in part of the digital program. And I guess explain what that is. And, you know, you were recruited as an opinion journalist, too, which I think some folks don't quite understand. I mean, I'm just I'm curious how that all works. Yeah. So, I mean, I work for for CNN Digital, which is kind of like a subset of CNN. Um, But, you know, like the organization is just so huge that it needs people who have various specialties. So, you know, like there's CNN International, which is the TV network that's outside the U.S. There's sort of the CNN domestic staff. We all work together and my work ends up on TV. It ends up on international TV. It ends up on our social channels. You know, we have social media teams um, as part of our digital operation. But yeah, a whole lot of people see CNN online who probably never turn it on on TV or, or, or rarely do, um, you know, who see it on Snapchat or Facebook or on their phone, like wherever. So I, I try to be in a lot of those places and, you know, pick and choose ways to experiment with different platforms and ways of talking with our audience that can be, make it a little interesting. So like I, I did a number of climate stories on, on Snapchat, for example, from like the first one I did sort of as a, as a pilot was in the Marshall Islands which is, you know, this remote country in the in the Pacific, like about a five hour flight past Hawaii going west. And, you know, it's a very low lying sort of group of, of atolls that are at, uh, you know, very much at risk from sea level rise and are already seeing uh, issues with flooding related to that. And, and you know, they're one of the countries that, frankly, may not exist if, if sea level rise projections end up where um, they're kind of ex- expected to go. And so I was doing this, this reporting out there and I, I did it, uh, very intentionally on Snapchat, partly as a like, kind of form meets function thing, because this is a, you know, a country that could be disappearing. And so I did these little sort of snapshots of culture and life there that also because of the way Snapchat works, you know, disappear after you view them. So I was kind of trying to underscore that theme, which was maybe like a little bit too meta for its own good, but I, I think it's kind of fun to experiment with different ways of telling stories. And, and yeah, I think CNN, people may not realize is, is much bigger and more nuanced in terms of its storytelling than just the the famous people you see on TV who are important also, but <laughs> it's kind of a whole different thing. <laughs> who get the giant paychecks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It stood out to me that 
you involve readers in this process. And, and I, I'd like you to also maybe provide a little bit of background on that. I mean, are these people that are providing comments on particular stories? I mean, what is your process to get this content from the public? And I mean, I guess, and how do you vet it? And, and is it that risk of someone who's gravitating to your content anyway? Is that sort of the only group of people that you're list, you know, hearing from? You, you get what I'm saying? So like maybe there's a yeah. whole universe of people that are never going to read or watch anything you produce, but I'm sure you want to get content from them. I, I think that's a, a really good question and one that a lot of people in this space of like trying to involve audiences in journalism, you know, are thinking a lot about. So um, the first like kind of functional part is, uh, you know, I get feedback in a, in a lot of places with two degrees. Some of it, quite a bit of it was through a newsletter that I have, like a two degrees newsletter. And then also, from Google Forms. So I, I would sort of just set up an impromptu form where people could like log a question about climate change, for example. And then, you know, it makes it really easy on the back end to sort of sort those, those questions as a spreadsheet and then to reach out to people who have sent them in and kind of talk to them about it. So I, I did that. We, CNN, you know, has like iReport channels, which are kind of the way that CNN talks to the audience and, and solicits uh, you know, photos and videos and questions and whatever from the audience. So I use that. So sometimes we would do Facebook chats um, and have people log questions there. So, you know, I tried a lot of different things. Honestly, the, the discussion seemed most productive to me when they were, when they were smaller, when you, when you get like all of CNN's Facebook audience in one place talking about something simultaneously, it can kind of almost be overwhelming for people participating in it, I think, and, and kind of random in it at a certain point i think there's you know definitely value there but but i found like when you ask people to you know in kind of a semi-private space like a, a google form or like replying to a newsletter to ask a question that, that they can feel a little less inhibited and less likely to be judged and kind of picked on for whatever they're saying cnn has done a number of projects recently and, and i can't take any credit for these but some of my smart colleagues in new york have, have done a lot with voicemails um, so in asking people about the election, they, they've just set up, you know, phone numbers for people will call and kind of leave their thoughts or personal story as a, a voicemail. And, and, and the, the person who runs that, you know, she often talks about how it has this almost kind of confessional feel to it. Like you can feel like you can be really honest in a format like that. So, you know, we're always trying to think of ways to, to have those conversations in a way that feels safe and comfortable for our, our audience. But, you know, a lot of times I would take the just run with one that seemed interesting or in a couple instances, we would put those out as a vote on on Facebook. Like here are five possible topics, all of which came from you. You know, which do you want to see CNN go out in the field to cover? That's how the Marshall Islands story happened. For example, a woman in California asked a question about climate refugees and where people go if they're displaced by rising seas. And that question got upvoted the most by our audience. And that's what sent me out, you know, to the Marshall Islands. And I ended up telling the story of this family that was split between this remote island country and kind of the most unexpected place you could think of, which is central Arkansas. Um, there, there were some people who had left uh, related to flooding and had moved to Springdale, Arkansas, which has a big Marshallese population wow, go figure um so yeah so I, I tend to like this this idea that ideas from the public or kind of outside of me like lead me in interesting directions that i wouldn't have seen coming or, or know to pursue on my own 
Yes, I see that was a tough choice to follow those recommendations to the Marshall Islands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I'll, you know, take one for the team. And, and Hey, but you and, went to uh, Oklahoma. Out there. So you, you, know, you, you did both sides of that. So, it, you know, as you were describing how you sort of did the story with on Snapchat, it occurred to me, I mean, I like to think I'm relatively hip with social media and such, but like how I don't consume news information and how other people do. And so doing it through Snapchat is, is very creative. And I had a question here for you, but I'm just not even sure if it's relevant anymore. I look at the Two Degrees homepage for you, and I look at all the climate change stories, and I wonder if have you looked at it recently and sort of said, okay, what am I saying here? What is what is the overall theme of what I'm accomplishing with the – and I know you have the little tagline at the top associated with the Two Degrees, but I'm just curious – have you been doing it enough? And I, and I think of all these different other platforms that you can share information on that are you there? Like, are you doing the things you want to do or you feel like there's any missing pieces? Um, I mean that, that homepage probably in terms of its design and layout maybe leaves a, a few things <laughs> to be desired, but I, I think, um, uh, you know, and we pr- frankly probably should do a, a, a better job at, at presenting that material to people. Um, but, I, you know, I think the overall idea for the two degrees project from my perspective was to explore this one number, you know, two degrees Celsius that has an incredible amount of importance for how we talk about climate change and how we think about climate change. Um, and, you know, and that project's span was, you know, uh, from about Earth Day 2015 to the, you know, the Paris climate talks that December. And the, the idea was, you know, this number two degrees Celsius is, is kind of the benchmark for catastrophic or like unallowable levels of warming that, that's, that's baked into the, the Paris agreement. You know, all these countries around the world, I think 130 some that have ratified or adopted it at this point, you know, are saying we don't want warming to cross this, this threshold. And so, um, I think that's something that has become a little bit more known in the general public. But at the time before that, you know, I think most people misunderstand a lot of basic things about climate change and probably had no idea about that benchmark. But it, it gives it gives a nice framing for talking about this and it changes conversations from, you know, oh, we should do more to pursue renewable energy or like, oh, yeah, I would like the air to be cleaner to you know, here's kind of a red line that the world has identified. And if we really want to meet that target, we need to be, you know, rapidly moving off of fossil fuels to the point that we're essentially not using them later this century and possibly need to develop technologies to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. So it, it puts it in, in this kind of stark relief. And so I saw that year of reporting as, you know, exploring that number, where it, where it came from, why it matters, what does the world look like? post two degrees, if that happens, you know, in what places are, are getting it right. Uh, I, I spent a little bit of time in Denmark on my way to the Paris climate talks, because arguably that's one of the few countries in the world that has a climate policy aggressive enough to actually, you know, be online with the two degree target. So I, I do think that, that that target is possible, but, but I think it's, it's useful to have as kind of a North star to guide what is actually needed in terms of action on on climate change. And, you know, I think it's interesting that all of that is coming sort of into question given the, the U.S. political scene right now. But there was a time not too long ago when, <laughs> when essentially every country in the world said this is a, a huge moral economic health crisis. And here's this one number that we're all agreeing to as, you know, our, our target. 
Well, I think when you start at CNN, you just got so spoiled at the beginning of the Obama administration, and it's just <laughs> like, okay, this is how I'm going to cover climate change, and we've got a non-hostile White House. You've just been spoiled. But, you know, the, the two degrees, I, I, I think it's a, a smart like, title for the whole thing, but I'm curious, especially, I guess, even though you do a lot of these international stories, I guess that domestic audience is probably most of the people tuning into the content that you're providing. Was there any discussion of using Fahrenheit or whatever it is, 3.2. I mean, because that in itself, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. You go to Oklahoma, and it's just all of a sudden you're talking past people by using Celsius. That, it's interesting you brought that up. I mean, there was a point actually where we, we did have a discussion about that. And, and at one point, I, I was actually making the argument that we should go with the Fahrenheit equivalent. But I think the way, one, our audience is international and, and a big part of it is domestic, but you know, I am speaking across those lines. And two, like the way that the, the world talks about this is, is two degrees Celsius, 1.5 Celsius being like the new number that kind of got thrown in to the, to the Paris Agreement, which is even more ambitious. But, you know, I would say that like on, on some level, and, and I don't mean that those numbers don't matter because I think they're actually hugely significant. Um, but on some level, in terms of talking about them, there's somewhat of an abstraction. Like I've actually seen really good arguments. There was one in Vox maybe a year or so ago about why the the real number that matters for climate is zero, which means, you know, we need to get to net zero greenhouse gas pollution this century, you know, shortly after 2050, really, if, if we want to have a hope of meeting those temperature targets. Like, it's hard for people to imagine, okay, what does the world feel like if it's two degrees Celsius warmer? It's unevenly applied. That's a global average. And so I, I didn't think it was like a big enough a deal, uh, that Celsius might be slightly confusing for people. You know, we often put the Fahrenheit equivalent in parentheses, like just in case, but, but I think it's like one reason that the world is gravitated or like, you know, sort of gravitated to that number is that it, it's also a nice, even number. It's not to say that at 1.9 Celsius, everything is totally fine. It's not like countries like the Marshall Islands could actually still be underwater in the long term with that much warming, which is why they were really pushing for 1.5 as a target. A lot of the small island states were. And it's not like 2.2, you know, is necessarily going to be like so much more of a catastrophe. There's a lot of uncertainty about when you cross certain tipping points that really disrupt the climate system. But what we do know that is that less warming is, that we're causing is, is better and safer. And so it's, it's part like, you know, an effort at risk management. The world is saying at two degrees Celsius, there is far less risk than if, you know, if we proceed into this kind of uncharted territory that goes beyond it. Yeah. And I think getting to the point of like, even if it was in Fahrenheit, that those numbers, again, these averages don't resonate with people. Oh, three degrees, that's nothing. And the, yeah. they don't, the, the whole average across the globe just doesn't mix with the folks. So, John, I want to jump into the discussion about Oklahoma. I got a bunch of questions for you because I, I was really compelling that you shared a video and you shared a story with me. But really quickly, I'm going to pitch a story idea, and we don't have to dwell on this. But I had Michael Mann on the podcast, and one of the mm -hmm. things I brought up to him was that it's, I think, next year is the 20th anniversary of his hockey stick research. And I told him that there should be some anniversary event. So here I am talking to a, a journalist reporter. So, I mean, you, we all know the hockey stick is now this iconic 
thing in in the climate yeah. change movement. So I'm throwing that idea out there. Whatever form it takes, like the 20 year anniversary of the hockey stick, I think that's important. So I'm I, I'm pitching it. I, to I you. like I like that idea, and I'm all, like like I was just saying, I'm always open to ideas coming from wherever. So I mean, I, I think like that is that is pretty incredible when you think about how long ago that was and how long people like him and like James Hansen have been talking about climate change and raising alarm. I mean, I've seen some videos, you know, thrown around on YouTube recently that, that show some of the, like the old news interviews from like the late eighties and early nineties. And it's staggering on some level that, that we're still having a lot of these same political fights and conversations. Meanwhile, the earth keeps breaking temperature records and, and the consequences of inaction are more and more clear. I mean, granted, there is a lot of action being taken and I think that that needs to be celebrated, but, but that's incredible to hear that it's, it's been, it's been that long <laughs> and it is in some ways still such a heated political and, and social debate. Well, he seemed keen on the idea, so I'm sure you could recruit him somehow. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, all right, I want to pivot to this Oklahoma story, which I, I really, I, first of all, my observations, I, I love the story, and that's why Andy Revkin obviously recommended I get you on. So that, you know, there, I, I don't know if I even saw all the pieces, but you have a, a longer written story of your time there, and then you have a shorter kind of interview uh, video that's associated with it. So it, it just, I just want to say you, you did a fantastic job, especially like the article. And as I was reading it, it was, it was a funny article. It was a sobering, it was, I got mad reading it, but the, <laughs> the entire time I was reading it, I was sort of thinking, cause the tone you use, you're, you're a really good writer. And it's like, I was imagining Jason Bluth from Arrested Development was going and doing this, you know, cause you know, I don't I'll know. I'll take you, that as a compliment. You, do you watch the show? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he, he has this befuddled, he has this sarcasm, but he's still this kind of nice guy and he wants to see the best. And I was thinking it's Jason Bluth talking climate change in Oklahoma. Anyway, any, that's the sort of tone that you use as you're writing it. So it was very entertaining. No, my life is like one big awkward calamity. Like, so I, I try to just go with that when I'm writing about things. I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, like I, like I mentioned, I, I'm from Oklahoma, but I, I'm not from, I, I went to Woodward County, which Yale identified as one of the most skeptical counties in, in the country. And you know, the, it, that is a very different place. It's much more rural. It's a lot of, farming cattle operations actually and so like I, I totally didn't fit in like i went to a cattle auction at one point and and someone uh was like why are you wearing stretch pants like because i was wearing skinny <laughs> jeans i guess and like i i um, you know i tend to get in a lot of kind of uh misadventure type situations in my reporting trips of whatever kinds and so i i, I just i'm kind of okay with being the awkward outsider in a lot of situations and and you know, I, I think that these conversations are worth having and I, I, uh, yeah, I don't try, I try to take myself too seriously and, you know, in oh, the process. I like it. You become like the Hunter Thompson of the climate change reporting. <laughs> it just, I don't know if it's that wild. Well, don't no go to bosses. No drugs were done. Right. No we're acid. Yeah. No, avoid that. But I mean, just the gonzo approach to it because it, the whole topic lends itself to being gonzo. Okay. So. You went out to Oklahoma and you were talking to these people and just I, I'm going to have the links to the, the article in my show notes so people can really it's a long piece and it's wonderful. And thank you. And I, I don't think this is original. I think I've been reading this is just that climate change has always sort of been the original fake news to a lot of people, you know, hmm. and that's, yeah. it's you go the first part of your article. You talk to these people like what what do you think of climate? and you're you what you were doing? I just want to set the stage a little bit here is that you're trying to find one person Woodward. 
Oklahoma that thinks climate change is happening and humans are responsible. And it was just like <laughs> you couldn't find anyone. And so it's like the original fake news. It, it, yeah, it is. And, and that was like I, I got I got pretty frustrated, like just personally, like trying to find, you know, someone who had this kind of information. I mean, and, and like the lead into the story, there's a woman telling me it's like a big fat lie. There, there's someone who called me a term that I'd never heard before, but I kind of like, which was prostitute. They, they, right, she was right. like, <laughs> you know, it's all the prostitutes are like making this up. And so you're right. I mean, it, it had it, it. it is one of those topics that for a long time people have been inclined, inclined to tune out or say is, you know, someone's agenda. But I, you know, like in, in talking to people there, I, I think one thing that I discovered is that there is more common ground than we often realize, like even among people who say that, you know, incorrectly, like to be fair, that the climate change isn't happening or that humans aren't causing it, you know, there, there's broad support for uh, renewable energy in Woodward. There's actually, there are a couple large wind farms and there is a, a, like a wind technician training center that, you know, I went there and sat in on a class and like, the people in that class were from all over the country. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's this very sort of highly regarded uh, center for training wind technicians. And, and um, you know, if there's money to be made off of it, people were very okay with that kind of switch. They'd say things like, you know, we want clean air. Like the, the Yale estimates said that something like 70% of people in that county, you know, support funding for renewable energy research, you know, nationally there's very broad support, much broader than, you know, would understand the science on climate change, but very broad support for like, you know, the Paris Agreement or even, you know, taxing or regulating carbon. So on solutions and some of the stuff that really matters if we want to do something about climate change, like there, there's less to fight about than when we get in this kind of fact war about the science and how we do know this and don't know that. I found those conversations to be among the most frustrating that I had in, in Woodward. But, but when, you know, you step back and talk about the big picture, it, it was a lot easier to have, to have that kind of talk. As a reporter, and I know you guys are trying to be neutral. And I mean, there was a section where you were trying to have that debate too. And this is what I guess pisses me off the most is that, in, you know, I'm, <laughs> and I'm trying to do it with this podcast. I want this podcast to be something the the general public, not just a bunch of wonky people listen to. And I, and, there's this kind of, and we chatted a little bit about this before, but like, how do you not approach these conversations without being at least secretly condescending to their positions? We know climate change is happening and they are like putting up this wall and, you know, it's just this giant chip on their shoulder. And on almost any other issue, I think our side would be a bit more aggressive, but it has to be this sort of polite way to do things to try to convince them to kind of come over here. And I'm in the camp that if you point A is like identifying a problem and point B is the solution and you have to just eat a shit sandwich in between that, you do it. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's just like there's this arrogance there yep. that they get to have, but our side can't. And yet they call you the prostitute, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, as a like, you know, this 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 story is written from a point of view of, you know, someone who, me, who <laughs> thinks that there should be action taken on, uh, you know, on climate change. But I, honestly, like, I, I don't know, it, maybe it's like just my personality, but like, I, you know, I am a reporter by nature. So I like asking people questions. I like listening to their perspective. And, and often 
in doing that for a living over a number of years, you know, you meet all kinds of people who say things that you don't agree with or find offensive or are deeply offensive to you personally. And you might not let that on right away. But I think like a productive conversation has to be built on mutual respect and trust. And you're never going to, I don't know. I think the, the best way to do that is to, is to try to hear the other person out, understand where they're coming from, how and why they've formed their belief system. Cause I, I always find that very fascinating and very individual, right? Like it's not like, I don't see this as like an us and them kind of scenario. There, there's a lot more nuance than, than, you know, there gets credit for. So, you know, I started with trying to listen. And then in a couple of cases, I did try to engage in like the debate and, and what I, I don't know what I found really quickly. And I don't have any amazing conclusion from this other than to say that it was frustrating is that like the, the fact war, like the, here's a chart that proves that I'm right. It is for certain people is like not a, a winning battle. And I, like, I don't know where that, that lands us as a society, but I can just say that that seemed true to me from my conversations there. Like I had, there was one guy who actually started pulling charts, like competing charts that were cherry picked and, you know, misrepresentative, but anyway, like out of his pockets and, you know, out of like his, you know, bag to, to show me why I was wrong and why the information that I was presenting, you know, about warming and how we know what's happening, like was incorrect. So there's, you know, a lot of misinformation, deliberate and otherwise that's, that's out there. And if people grab onto that stuff, it's, it's hard, it's hard to counter that. I, I think that, you know, when I was out there and since I've tried to think of like, okay, what are the different ways you can, you can make the argument that climate change is worth paying attention to. One is the fact way, like that I just mentioned, and I'm not saying abandoned facts, but I'm saying maybe don't, maybe it's not as productive as the way one person put it to me is like to get in this very kind of male competitive zone where you're just like butting back and forth on a debate team. You know, another is, and I don't entirely like this, this approach either is to like not say climate change and to just focus on areas of agreement like renewable energy. Um, but I think that that's kind of misleading or somewhat irresponsible too, because climate change is the reason that we <laughs> need to get onto renewable energy so much quicker than we would otherwise perhaps. Um, you know, there's like an interesting moral argument about climate change that I think works with certain people and certain conservatives pretty well. It's the one that the Pope has made, which is that you know, the poorest people in the world are going to be some of the, those most hurt. They're, they're also doing the least, if anything, to cause this. So this is like the Marshall Island story, you know, wrapped up in a, in an argument, which is that people in the Marshall Islands are doing almost nothing to cause climate change. And yet their whole country, their language, their culture is all threatened because we won't change. There are the business cases. And I, I saw this really interesting conversation a week ago at this climate and health summit that was at the Carter Center here in Atlanta that Al Gore was fronting. And there's this guy, Jerry Taylor, who used to work for the Cato Institute, who talked about how he was a climate skeptic and put forward a lot of like climate skeptic type policy statements and now has switched his view. And and he said that for him, it was kind of the business case slash like a risk management type argument, like not getting high and mighty about we know exactly what catastrophes are going to happen when, but just saying honestly, like that there are huge risks associated with doing nothing about this problem. And we can reduce those risks, maybe not eliminate them, but reduce them greatly if we do 
some of these smart economic things, like in his view, a carbon tax to try to reduce this negative externality in economic speak, but you know, the pollution. Um, and then the final way, which is one I thought a lot about at that health conference last week is the idea of health. Like, I think there's a lot of agreement that, you know, that the disease and death and hospitalizations and asthma attacks that are associated with certain fossil fuels, especially coal are negative regardless of what you think about climate change, not to mention, you know, the disease transfer and all sorts of other things that are associated with a warming climate. But, but they're talking about it on a, a human suffering and human level impact that that argument might cut through to people. So I, like I said, I, I don't, I definitely don't have it figured out how to convince everyone, you know, that the climate change is real and, and matters. Um, but I think listening is a really important first step. And then having like an honest conversation, telling people why you believe what you do and for what reasons and acknowledging them as a respected human on the other side of that is, you know, like a good place to start, I think. I mean, I just want to note that you talk about the, that one person pulling out those charts and, and such. And, you, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, these, this is a very Christian area in Oklahoma, much like the South. And, you know, I, I've had my experiences, especially with, you know, born again Christians, and it's a tough battle. I mean, I have family members that, you know, one's a young earth creationist, and we'll get into these discussions. And, you know, at some point, I just sort of ask, is there any intellectual journey you can take to get you to the point that you think that the you, you'll be convinced the earth is four billion years old versus 5,000? And he acknowledged, hmm. honestly, no. And that's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm seeing those parallels with the climate and the guy pulling out his charts. It's just like, you know, there's no, and, and I'm hoping this is just a small, you know, 10, 20% of the public, but there, that, that science means nothing. And I think a lot of science societies and a lot of scientists just don't get that. And I, I want to use this quote that's from the article. And I think it lends itself to what you were just saying. So Jack Day from your article said this, it comes down to trust and I haven't found a good resource for myself. It, I'm pretty much a see it, believe it kind of guy. And I'm sure by that time it's too late. Which I thought was just this amazing honesty that, you know, he's not there yet, but he feels like once he gets there, he recognizes it might be too late for all this. That's, I mean, that's very sobering. I, I, I think it is. And, and I think that I'm glad you read that quote because I, I think that it's important to, to realize for, you know, an audience, I'm assuming that, you know, mostly are working in the climate space or, or know something about it. The, you know, that, that there is a lot of nuance in how skeptics see this issue. And, you know, and I, I think that that see it, believe it point is a really interesting one. Climate change is such a hard thing to see and feel as an individual who was one data point on this globe, right? You know, it's a, it's a, a thing that plays out over time, plays out as average changes. It plays out unevenly in different places. And so that's where you get, you know, people saying it's cold today. Like, where's your climate change now? Or you get, um, you know, Senator Inhofe standing on the, the floor of the U.S. Senate holding a snowball and saying, where's climate change? And I, uh, I, I just think that that ma- it makes it hard to process. I, I think the fact that we've had so many record breaking years in terms of global temperatures, I, I think that that sadly, like probably is increasing understanding the fact that these we're seeing weather events with our fingerprints on them more often now. I think that that slowly over time is waking certain people up. Um, I know I've heard Jeff Sachs and others make that case that, you know, as these um, 
effects of climate change become more apparent, it's going to be harder to deny it. I think that's sad, but also true. But I think we also have to look at like, okay, what are the systems that that create that that help people get or stay away from information about climate change? And I think, you know, there have been studies showing that climate change is, is not taught well in American schools. You got to look at like who are the people in power either in religious institutions, like as you mentioned, or especially in government who are making incorrect and false statements about climate change and leading to confusion. I mean, if you're, if you're someone whose identity is, is tied to movements and people who are saying climate change is bunk and you don't need to care about it, it takes like an incredible amount of mental gymnastics to like leap out of that and, and say like, okay, I'm going to disagree with what I perceive to be everyone around me and think something different about it. So I, I think honestly, just like acknowledging that as, as part of it. And, and it's not like a, a stupidity thing. It's like, there's a lot of stuff going on that helps shape people's views in one way or the other. You know, and I'll mention another person who I met in, in Woodward, who was a, an older farmer who had, if I remember correctly, he may not have lived through the Dust Bowl, but he came his, I, th- I believe that his parents did or his family did. And he lived through a major drought in Oklahoma, Western Oklahoma in the fifties. That was just like incredibly searing and, you know, like rapid dust bowl history, you know, like people caused that disaster in part by, you know, over plowing the land and leading to these massive dust storms and just really this apocalyptic stuff. And so there's that history baked into this highly skeptical place that I was hanging out. And, those experiences shaped this one particular farmer's views in a way that he's like, we can mess up nature. And I know that that's happened before. And so I'm inclined to think maybe there is something to this. So I just think that there are a lot of like histories and stories and identities woven into how someone forms a view about climate change. And it's not just as simple as being like, well, like, why have you looked at this chart? Like, what's, (laughs) you know, what's going on? Well, John, I, I got a couple more areas I want to get to, but it's just, like, it's a final thought on that Oklahoma. I, I'm just curious, have you shared the article with any of the people quoted in it? And if you did, did they give you any feedback? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them saw it. I heard it was pretty widely discussed in, in the county. Um, one of the more interesting pieces of feedback is I, I did hear from a guy who's quoted who, who actually paid to, told me he paid to build this dinosaur statue that's right in the heart of Woodward, Oklahoma, that has like a child on top of it and a plaque saying, you know, that, that basically it's like a, this roamed the earth like 5,000 years ago. I can't remember exactly what, what year it said, but you know, it's basically like an anti evolution thing saying that dinosaurs and people coexisted. And, you know, he was definitely like one of the most firmly skeptical people about, about climate science. He also, you know, told me that he was in the process of installing a lot of solar panels because he thought that that was cost effective to do. And so again, speaking to that kind of like center points in the Venn diagram, he was a good example of that. I heard from him afterwards and he told me, and he was one of the people I was worried would hate this story. And, you know, he told me he thought it was fair and he'd be open to, to talking to me again and that it, that it was good to meet me. Um, I also, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are people there who, who really hated it. There's also a woman who is in the video who kind of talks, I think we actually included this in the cut, talks about how being included in that interview and in that project was making her rethink and question some things. She was a person who told me that she thought, you know, I was like, okay, what do you think people, what do you think might be causing climate change? Or what do you hear people saying, even if you don't believe it? And she said that 
that it was like aerosols and like hairspray, which makes sense that she would think that given the problems in the 90s with the ozone hole and, you know, aerosols being a focus there, but is not, you know, so on point for the the climate conversation. But but for her, it was like just this honest confusion and lack of information. Almost no one talks about climate change with their family and friends and family and friends are known to be very trusted sources on issues like this. And so there's just a, there's also like an information void. And she was a person who I think was living somewhat in that void and said, you know, through this interview, it's made me think about it some more. And I, I talking about it now makes me think that I should call her and see what she's up to these days and what she thinks now. Cause I don't know, you know, if, if that really made her like a firm, believer that this is something worth focusing on but it definitely like she was i think thinking about it in a new way just from having talked about it and so if you know i want to underscore like one final point from that reporting is that like just engaging in these conversations regardless of whether they're comfortable or not and they're often not is important because people tend to assume that everyone around them kind of thinks like they do and unless you actually open those lines of a communication and people realize that oh that maybe we're all kind of a little confused on this or could use a little more information that, you know, people can just kind of go on thinking that, you know, everyone thinks exactly like they do and they never question it. So, you know, final note on that for me is, is talk to people about this, not in a proselytizing, bossy, arrogant kind of way, but in like an honestly, if you think that this is a huge concern and I think that it is, I think it's one of the biggest crises that we're facing. Um, human rights, environment, health, otherwise economic, then, you know, like talk about it, even if that's uncomfortable. Well, congratulations on that reporting. It's a great piece. Thank you. Okay. So uh, I just a couple other areas I want to chat with you and just, I don't know if you figured out, this is America DAPS and my emphasis really has been on adapting to climate change. And I think a lot of the reporting you do with two degrees, you know, is on climate change impacts or how we're going to find solutions to this. And, you know, I bring on you know, planners and scientists and most of them focusing on the impacts that we're already dealing with now. But there's actually a robust community of people, you know, dealing with this. And, you know, President mm -hmm. Obama was quite aggressive in this. And, and I'm just curious, I, do you feel like it's an issue that you're covering with two degrees? Um, I'm glad you asked that. And I'm glad that you all have a focus on it. I For, for two degrees in particular, you know, I was focused mostly on that number and what it means. And, and I think an important part of that, you know, is or should be, what do we do if we cross that line? Honestly, just, I'm giving you like a completely honest Please. answer here. <laughs> I, I think, I feel like this moral obligation to be talking about cutting emissions and to be hitting that point really strongly because, you know, there are some aspects of climate change that could get so bad that either we can't adapt to them or it's going to be just hugely expensive to do so if we have, you know, runaway warming and, and, and tragic for people in various parts of the globe. And having met a lot of those people on the front lines of climate, of climate change in various places, like that really sticks to you. And I think that's kind of guided my moral compass more towards the mitigation side of things, but I, I should do more on the other side. And just one like anecdote there is that I, you know, when I was in the Marshall Islands, I, um, I asked some people about that and, and I, the way that I was asking about it is like, do you think people here and or the government should be creating plans to move or at least like contingency plans for like, okay, here's what 
we would do, you know, if this place becomes uninhabitable or if it's flooding so frequently that it, it's just like expensive and not easy to, to live here. And something that the, the president's daughter actually told me that, that really stuck with me was she, she was like offended to be asked that question in a sense and, and said that that's not on us. It's on you all in the, you know, in the big polluting economies to say, what are we going to do to cut emissions fast enough to avoid the end of my country? And that, like I said, really stuck with me because it's like, you know, who's to blame for what's happening, who's responsible. And it is, you know, those of us who are, are, you know, throwing all this pollution up into the atmosphere. And I understood where she was coming from in terms of being almost offended to be asked, well, okay, you know, what are you going to do if you have to move? Uh, on the flip side, I totally understand from just a, you know, like a, a realistic standpoint that there are climate change impacts happening like right now. <laughs> they are expensive. Planning for them and doing it now as opposed to after a catastrophe is will save lives and money and is is smart in all sorts of ways. And like in December, I was up in one of the villages in Alaska that is that um, voted last year actually to relocate because of warming and the coastal erosion that's associated uh, with it. So they have a different view. Their view is we want a safe and healthy future for our kids and for our young people. And they've kind of come to the re realization that that's not where they are and where their ancestors have been for at least hundreds, if not thousands of years. But I, I think like it's worth thinking about like the real toll of that, the real toll of being asked to adapt is inherently unfair in a way. And, and like I said, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that it needs to happen because it, it does, but I find that to be a really sensitive and interesting issue because th there really are, you know, lives and cultures and languages and entire ways of life that are on the line. And, you know, and some of that, there are probably are adaptation measures that could, can slow these changes. But if we don't cut greenhouse gas emissions drastically, those effects are going to be much more widespread. Well, I agree. And I think you have those situations like these small islands. There's only so much the adapting that they can do and the warming that's baked in. It's almost, it's a foregone conclusion. But it's interesting how you just described it. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, there was even more, the, the camps were even bigger that there was a lot of resentment that anyone would talk about adaptation because there's a sense that you're throwing in the towel on mitigation. And if you talk to anyone on the adaptation side, they're just like, that is crazy. We cannot yeah, do yeah. our jobs if you don't get the mitigation side under control. And so let me just throw this out at you. And this is, and I've, I've actually had this kind of journey just with all the guests that have coming on. To me, adaptation is a potential Trojan horse for real mitigation. I mean, I, I think the Paris Agreement was a huge you know, opportunity, but at the same time, what's happening on the ground and adaptation is out there in the local communities. People are building seawalls or, I mean, you're building water reservoirs, but I mean, adaptation is really just a, a huge spectrum of actions. And it's not usually associated with like, you know, renewable energy and that, you know, those people in Oklahoma doing the solar panels, but that's going to fall under adaptation, adapting to climate change, that sort of mitigation that's happening will ultimately be an adaptive response to climate change. And so to me, 
is I think as the country starts to climate-proof itself, I think there's a way to educate about mitigation that's sort of mm-hmm. kind of lost right now. And so I, I would encourage you as a, as a journalist who focuses on this issue that there's an opportunity there with adaptation because right now those are stories that are being created as opposed to sort of saying, okay, you need to do this because in 50 years this won't happen. Yeah, no, it, it has a very like now element that is that is interesting and, and important. And like I said, I, I don't, I don't want, I'm don't want to be one of those people who is like who is discounting it. I just like having looked in the eyes of someone who's wrestling with whether their country might not exist. It like that that stays with you in a in a certain way. But I I like that I like that idea of climate proofing the country or at least like trying to buttress against what we know is happening you can go too far in, in either direction right you can be like we have to we have to slow down warming and that's the only thing to care about then we know that there's already stuff happening and we should be preparing for changes that are like you said like kind of baked into the climate system right now i think the other end yeah there, there's the fear that if if it seems like okay we can build higher seawalls and miami beach can raise its roads and install these pumps and whatever then you know if if it seems like, and I don't, I just don't think this is true. And I, I don't think anyone on the adaptation side would really be arguing this, but I think it's just like the potential impression, um, you know, that we can't just like engineer our way around a world that becomes four five, six degrees warmer. Right? Oh, like, no. I mean, and I, and I don't think if you deal with people in the field that, you know, because a lot of the work is based on like, okay, here are future projections and it's like, yeah. okay, we're not going to keep doing what we're doing if we keep digging this hole. It's a it's a waste of time, and, and I think the people legitimately doing adaptation, there's this acknowledgement, it's like, okay, <laughs> we don't want to build seawalls that are 50 feet high. That's just not practical. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all living on like in floating buildings and and whatever else. But no, I mean, I think either it, it's got to be a conversation about about both, and I, I'm really interested. I mean, I'd be curious in your observations about it's probably too early but like where the trump administration is or isn't going in terms of in terms of funding those kinds of projects because i mean there are a lot of cities even under the obama administration that were complaining a lot of them in florida you know that this is super expensive for us to try to deal with what we know is coming with climate change and we're not getting the help that we need to do that and so you have rich cities like miami beach that can throw lots of money at the problem essentially but then you have you know poorer communities some in that same metro area you know that that really can't so i mean that seems unfair on some level to to me so i wonder what's going to happen under under trump and and if where money will or won't be spent funny you mentioned that someone just shared an article with me from mashable of all places it's it's i I was I'm surprised by sort of the, some of the reporting that they've been doing lately, but it, all this sort of website editing that you've been hearing about climate change over at the EPA, some of the editing there, there was a pivot from emphasizing mitigation to emphasizing adaptation, which uh, to me, I was fascinated. I mean, there's an opportunity. At the, I mean, on one hand, it's horrifying, but the other is like, I just think they were giving up on climate change completely. And so I think they there was literally changing in text from like federal partnerships to federal adaptation collaborations and it's weird but as with i think a lot of things that trump is suggesting you just don't know if there's going to be any follow-through you know is it just something they say or do they actually follow through on these things but this article was very interesting that these are some of these things that are already happening at least on the websites and so maybe they think 
all right, we'll deal with adaptation. I mean, the mitigation is the regulatory aspect of it, and that, that's the hard stuff. We'll just throw some crumbs toward the adaptation. I mean, maybe that's where they'll go. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I think we're all kind of watching day by day and hour by hour to see what uh, <laughs> what changes what changes are in in store, right? But like, I mean, I think the I haven't seen as much on the adaptation side, so that is interesting if they potentially end up focusing on that. Like from the very macro standpoint, right? I mean, it seems pretty clear that um, from you know from j- even from just like the America First Energy Plan that's on the White House website that you know. More fossil fuels, revived coal, which a lot of economists would say isn't possible, you know, almost pretty much all jobs based, but fossil fuel jobs based. So I think that we'll have to see what regulations like do or don't fall, what happens with the Paris Agreement and, and uh, you know, all these things. But it's definitely an interesting and busy time to be to be watching this issue in the U.S. Well, I'll share that Mashable article with you it was fascinating you know it's, it's some someone even you quoted would epa turn into the environmental adaptation agency which is <laughs> i'm not encouraging that but I, i'm as you can imagine i do see a silver lining of like okay yeah we're keeping that conversation going and again i naively think that adaptation once this you know society as a whole starts gearing up to climate proof itself it's it's the trojan horse and so that's my mm-hmm. my, my naive hope yeah, I mean, uh, silver linings. I think we, we're we're all um, <laughs> looking looking for them, right? And I mean, I think that the administration is saying things like we value clean air and clean water. I think I was talking to a, an air policy expert yesterday, and you know, he he was saying like this is such a paradox because at the same time, you know, they're saying that they want to re-up uh, industries, including coal, that are, are known to you know dirty the air and the water and lead to deaths and illnesses and all sorts of other things. But I, I think, I think like silver lining center of Venn diagram, like whatever, like visual you want to put with it, that, that there is, there is like a broad, a very broad majority of the country that does support things like clean air, clean water, renewable energy, clean fuel, more jobs. And like a lot of that stuff is very congruous with doing something about climate change. So I, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're going to be looking for that stuff and, and thinking about how to talk about these things in, in that kind of environment. While I think it's important to say, you know, not abandoning the fact that climate change is real and it is arguably the most serious, you know, environmental risk of, of this age. Well, and just one other note on the adaptation potential focus for you is, you know, I'm going to have someone talking national security coming on relatively soon. And, you know, these islands, that are getting flooded and just coastal areas and the immigration associated with that, there's all sorts of concern related to destabilization of these societies. And so that in itself is, you know, an adaptation uh, response. It's not just the happy go build a seawall. These are just, you know, dealing with moving populations and that that's all falling under the adaptation umbrella. No, it's, it's a massive challenge to figure out what to do with people who are, are being, being displaced in small numbers now, but likely will be displaced in, in bigger numbers. I mean, there's all the, the, the sort of really interesting politicking too. Like I, I haven't checked into this since the time when I was doing that Marshall Island story, but you know, there were other islands that were trying to buy up land on islands with higher elevations, like in figuring out if we need to migrate, like where can we go? Like the Marshall Islands actually has a, a sort of easier pipeline than most in that it has an agreement with the U S that they can, you know, people, Marshallese people can immigrate here and live and work without getting special permission or, you know, have been able to do that. Um, so, 
that's how people ended up in Arkansas. But there are people in other countries that are like, there's no clear way that they can move. And there's no clear process that I'm aware of that to be, you know, defined as a climate refugee and seek asylum in a country because you're displaced. So like, these are all, yeah, really important adaptation questions that I think we're all going to be wrestling with sadly for, for decades, if not longer. Oh my gosh. That's like a reality show to go from the Marshall islands to Arkansas, those poor people, you know, that's, that's, that's just... it's, it's wild. I mean, it's like, and having like been to both, like, cause I went to Springdale too. Like, I mean, it's just like opposite worlds, right? You have this, you know, these fragile little islands that are basically like the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands told me this is, we're like a big ocean country, not a small island country. Cause like they're so tied to the ocean. And in a lot of places you can stand on those islands and like see the ocean on both sides of you. Um, and then you're like in one of the most landlocked parts of the U S and like just culturally like climate, like everything. I mean, it's just, it's so, so different, but there, there's a kind of robust Marshallese community in Springdale and that who are trying to like carry on some of those traditions. Like I, you know, went to a big family gathering that was in a park where people are playing ukulele music and, you know, all this sort of bringing Marshallese stuff with them. But it, it is heartbreaking to see like these families split. And there is with among a lot of people who ended up in Springdale, this kind of deep longing for home and this sense of, of, of loss about, you know, where they came from. So, um, it's a tough, tough topic for sure. Well, I'm thinking about doing some on location podcasting and that would actually make a really interesting story. And so I, I guess on that note, John, I, I want to wrap this up relatively soon, but my next topic and we chatted about this before is podcasting. And I, I said, you should do a podcast. And I think you said you thought about doing <laughs> one before. And the more I think about it, the fact that you interact with your readers to try to get content for your, your, the shows that you do, it's just podcasting that the sort of feedback that you do have with your readers is a great, great thing. And so I'm just using my time with you to sort of say, you should start a podcast. It, it would be really good. You got a great voice. <laughs> you, you, you. you know these I things should it, i should give it a whirl at, at some point you're, you're right i mean i, I love the medium I, I love and i love what you're doing with this one and i think um you know there, there's a certain like closeness with like hearing someone talk as opposed to just reading their i mean reading their writing like every medium has its own strengths and weaknesses but a podcaster you know have taken off like crazy in the last couple few years so I, I i should i should give that a go at some point it would be part of all those different platforms it, you would be an easy one i i, I just can't describe how good a fit would be so just something to think <laughs> about and and so if you are just thinking about it i just want to ex- I, I didn't know how this conversation was going to unfold i don't know if you were just going to give me one word answers and that would have been a disaster but like consider this an open invitation if you just want to do test run on podcasting you come on and do an occasional segment here and we chat about some topic and so I would love to get you back on and you know, maybe there's some issues that you, you want to get out through the podcast medium if you haven't started your own. So I just want to extend that open invitation. That's very kind of you. It's, it's, it's generous of you to do that. And I'll, uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted on, on sort of what I'm working on and, and, you know, see if there's a fit. All right. Great. Okay. And so the, the last part of this is I ask each guest and that's why you're on here today. If you could recommend one person to come onto this podcast and you have the ability to help get them on even better, but I mean, who would you recommend? Um, I mean, since we've been talking about the climate refugee or migration situation, I mean, I'd say have someone on who is either faced with relocating or, or has had to, I mean, I could connect you with people 
in in the Marshall Islands or in Springdale or I, I met met up with again recently when I was up in Alaska. I was in I was in Shishmaref, Alaska, and there's a a teenager who's from there, Isa Sinak, who is kind of become a climate activist because of the situation his community's in where they're faced with with relocation. And I met him at the Paris Climate Talks. Uh, and it was this kind of weird, like not weird, but just very fortuitous meeting because I, I'd been to his community before, like back in 2009, and I, I'd actually interviewed his grandparents. And so then he, you know, I just happened to meet him in Paris, and it was kind of this wild connection on the other side of the world. Um, but th- but there are a lot of people from communities on the front lines that are having to adapt already, and I think including those voices could be could be really cool because I mean. Like I was saying, the, the emotional toll of these adaptations, even if they make sense money-wise and, and otherwise, it, it's like it, it helps get a fuller picture of okay, what are we really asking of people as as they make these these changes? So I, I'd say you know someone like that would be super cool to have on. Well, that is a fantastic recommendation. If you could get me a name, and, and I think the Spring Springdale in Arkansas, someone that would I think. I think a lot of people would find that riveting. So, yeah, I would follow up with you. And if you can find a name for me, that'd be great. Yeah, happy to help. Okay. On that note, John, I just want to say I'm glad Andy kind of brought you up and brought you into my universe. I I appreciate journalists doing the work that you do. I I mean, just it's important. I think we all struggle to try to get climate change more relevant to the broader public and you know we're all i think we all have to consider ourselves as part of this collective but you're doing some amazing work and i just i want to thank you for the work that you're doing i hope you keep focusing on climate change thanks doug and and you as well i mean i I appreciate the the conversations you're starting with this podcast it's i I listen to you know a few of them getting ready for this and it's it's always an interesting conversation so thanks for thanks for what you're doing too all right great okay okay well um i hope you have a great week and enjoy I, i guess it's pretty hot in atlanta this week it's warming up up here yeah, it's been rainy today, but it's it's been like in the 70s recently. It's 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 very wild. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note, thanks again, and everyone, I tune in next week. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hey, we're back. What's a conversation with John Sutter of CNN? I absolutely love that conversation with him. I learned a ton, and I just thought it was fascinating on how he was talking to skeptics. And so I wanted to have sort of a a decom impression conversation of that's if that's the appropriate turn and so i brought back on i've been having dan agerstein on and tim watkins has been a long time regular and so i've got tim watkins on who's a science communicator for those who are new to the podcast um he's a science communicator but he's been on many previous episodes and hey tim how's it going hey doug all right good to be back on with you yep it's been a little while i've missed you <laughs> oh, I miss you too, Doug. Right. Okay. All right. Moving on from the awkward silence. Okay. So what I wanted Tim to do was partly just he's going to have some questions, but he's listened to the podcast. He was one of the first people to listen to the John Sutter podcast. And we're going to have a little a short conversation, about 10 minutes about that conversation. And just I wanted to get Tim's insights to make this part of the, the overall podcast that everyone else is going to hear. So, yeah, Tim, let's just kind of – I don't have a lot of structure to this, but let's let's just jump into um, what did you think of the episode? Um, I liked it a lot. And I'll tell you uh, – and, and I don't know exactly how you're going to be editing his, his uh, interview. So um, hopefully you're keeping this one particular turn. But after I listened to your conversation with him – I want to be a prostitute. <laughs> right, right. What, what a great term, right? <laughs> that was wonderful, yeah. You know, I, 
I thought it was really so he's a journalist and something that I admired about him and I see this in various other journalists as well is the ability to not be too riled up about events or to be too depressed about the state of affairs under the current administration and climate change action and policy and and all of it. Yeah, I really admire his his professional distance that he's able to maintain and his ability, and he talked about this, his ability to truly listen to people and to pick up on little nuggets of things that they say that reveal deeper truths. And so he can be talking to a flat out climate denier and that person will say something and he's able to kind of dig down a little bit, I think, using journalistic listening and probing skills and get into maybe deep down there's, this this climate denier is worried about air quality or is worried about, you know, health effects of of climate change. It, and I just I don't know. I really admired that. I really, really came to appreciate what the, the value of a truly good journalist. And that seems to be what he's doing, although, I you know, I, I'm not familiar with his work. I haven't looked at his page, but I'm certainly intrigued by it. Well, yes, and I think what's a little bit different, too, which, you know, I think we talked a little bit about is that, you know, it is recognized that he's an opinion journalist, which is not quite clear. It's not like he's an opinion columnist that you might see on, you know, the editorial page, but I think it does allow him to kind of bring in his own personality into some of these stories more so than like your your typical kind of like journalism that we might associate. I mean, it's pretty clear. It says on the website, you know, opinion journalism. Yeah, right. Right. But it just made me think, you know, would we all be better off collectively if if not only did we have sort of media literacy, right, something that is really lacking in this country and people talk about, well, students should be learning more media literacy, but just training in journalism, journalistic techniques, um, you know, should scientists be trained as journalists, should political activists be trained as journalists? Should politicians be trained as journalists? Because it just seems like, you know, really being able to ask a question and listen carefully and and dig down into those deeper truths and perspectives uh, and respecting the the viewpoints and the experiences and the opinions of the people you're interviewing. Boy, if, if we could all do that a little better, I think the temperature would be turned down. And we just might make more progress on on issues like climate change. And I I just I, I, so I'm listening to him thinking, wow, I, I really wish I had more of his sort of perspective and skills um, and feel like I would benefit from that. So it, w- it was a good thing for me to hear. Certainly. The irony is that folks like him at CNN and some of the other major news outlets are now being accused of fake news and just not really being legitimate news sources, which goes counter to your point that these are well-trained people that are they're trying in earnest to kind of bring the the truthful information which i mean to me that's it's a big shame it's a it's it's an unfair situation where these kind of news sources are are considered uh, you know untrustworthy so that's that's not a good sign well by people who are saying that to advance a particular agenda well i mean you have the president of the united states saying it and that's a, not, not that i agree with the man but that's a pretty big microphone that he's using to cr- muddy the waters or whatever the expression i should be using is that he is creating a perception that is completely unjustified and and that's not good yeah right no that's that's the mark of a authoritarian <laughs> indeed um so anything else any other parts of what he was talking about that you know you, you liked or would 
you know, I think we, I wanted to, was there any questions you, you felt like, okay, I want to, him to answer this and I never got around to it? Well, that's a two part question. So just one other thing that he noted was, and sort of struck a chord for me was the stark reminder that the hockey stick graph is 20 years old. And, you know, so Michael Mann and, and others, uh, have been sounding the alarm about climate change for decades. And that, that was, that was a very sobering reminder. And, you know, the, the short end of that stick, right? The, the part that's going up is, is going, getting longer and longer and longer as, as our average temperatures just keep climbing. And, and to think that this is just, we're saying the same thing now, uh, to policymakers that, you know, we were saying 20 years ago is that sobering. It just occurred to me, like, how long can we stick with the hockey stick image? At what point will it be like a boomerang? And then what it'll be like a reverse hockey stick because the the CO2's arm will be longer, you know? It's, yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the first part of your conversation with him was about his experience in Oklahoma and, and reporting on environmental issues. And I, I was so you asked me what I was surprised you hadn't hadn't asked him. I'm surprised you did not mention the name Scott Pruitt. All right. Right. Right? If he knew him personally. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, and uh, Pruitt, of course, is now the head of the EPA and he was, he was the, um, what the, the attorney general in Oklahoma and involved for many years in suing the EPA the very agency that he's now heading. And of course, just um, a few days ago, earlier this week, a court uh, ordered that, what was it? Something like 1500 pages of emails be released from Pruitt's office. And they indicate that he was very cozy with the oil and gas and, and petrochemical industry, which, you know, I think we all knew that or suspected that, but there it is. It's quite the paper trail. And, it's just a mess. But, um, yeah, I thought you were going to go down that road a little bit. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I, I missed that connection. He could have, you know, maybe he was covering him when he was through it as a sort of lower wrong. That would have been interesting. Yeah, that was a missed opportunity. Right, right. Um, and then I was thinking, at, you know, at one point, kind of early in the conversation, he was talking about, and you were introducing his work, but then he talked about it a little bit, in the Marshall Islands. And where do people in a place like that go in the face of sea level rise? You know, how do they adapt? And I thought you were going to ask him, what's the answer? You know, what are people doing? Because, I, I you know, I, th- it seems like that's a really cool story. And how people in the Marshall Islands are adapting, maybe that sheds light on uh, what might happen here in the States. But then it was really interesting because later in the conversation, he talked a little bit more in depth. And he, remember, he, he mentioned the president's daughter, who really was offended at being asked what they are going to do to relocate. And she basically said, look, the issue is what will you folks do in these Western high energy economies to prevent the demise of my country? And she properly cast it in light that places the moral responsibility where it is. So I thought that was a really powerful sort of turn of perspective uh, in that conversation. Yeah, and it it stood out to me, too. It it came out later because, you know, toward the end of the conversation, you know, I was sort of suggesting to him that, you know, I I hope he looks at uh, adaptation as an area that he can focus on. 
And he sort of pushed back on that a little bit. I mean, he seems very interested, but it, it, that story in itself of that person, you know, and I guess I'm not looking at it because I've been so stuck in the kind of domestic side of adaptation that some of these islands, it's like, really, what is adaptation for an island that's going to disappear likely? And I'm used to the United States. It's like drought or this. And so for him, that's what was kind of seared in his brain. So this, you know, I guess not thinking about the domestic side of adaptation. That's why it wasn't such a an easy pivot for him. And I thought that that was kind of interesting for me that he he still hasn't jumped on the adaptation bandwagon. But he, he does see that there's probably a lot of probably good stories there. But other experiences influence that sort of, I guess, reaction from him. Yeah. Well, I wonder if um, in the course of these conversations, you know, over the past, what's it been like over six, about six months, maybe seven months of seven months. Adapts. Yeah, seven months. And thinking about mitigation as a strategy of adaptation, because if you're in a hole and you have to cope with being in that hole and you want to make the hole shallower, the first thing to do is to stop digging. Right. So. <laughs> maybe I'm I'm losing the analogy here, but um, no, I use that analogy I think in my talk with him. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you know you did a little bit, but you know I I do think that so I, so I'm going to get solar panels put on my roof, and you know is that adaptation? Well, no, it's not helping me adjust to the climate change that is already baked in, as you called it. But um, I think collectively, if we do more of that and move off of a carbon based economy, then um, that sort of a precondition or a, an early step to uh, to adapting and making the rest of the sort of adaptation that we have to do much more feasible and, and economically viable and, and just less expensive and painful for, you know, our kids and grandkids generations. So, well, you know, the longer I do this podcast and I and I've talked about this and I alluded very, I think, superficially about how I feel ultimately mitigation will fall under adaptation. But I think I'm truly making that pivot now, and these are the conversations I think I've been having more recently, is that I do see adaptation being this kind of Trojan horse for for mitigation, that we need to somehow come up with a different strategy. And I, I honestly believe committing to adaptation will make, <laughs> I'm trying to think of good analogies here, but it's just, it'll make it more fertile ground to maybe get a bit more progress on the mitigation side. And, and I think we really need to marry those two concepts. And I'm going to use this podcast to, I think, make that argument over and over again, because I, I think that's important now. I think I, I see a window there. I'm excited yeah. by that prospect. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in certain communities, and, and this is probably true for some of the rural communities in Oklahoma that he referred to, if you can educate them and, and frame mitigation, so, you know, reducing carbon footprint, relying more on renewable energy, driving less, if, if you can pitch that not as a way of, like, cutting back on the luxuries of life or having to do something under a regulatory state, but rather pitch it, pitch that mitigation as a way of adapting to change that's already happening and will continue to happen. Um, then maybe you get more traction in those communities. And, it, you know, your interview with him kind of headed a little bit in that direction. And, and I'd love to see how that conversation evolves in the coming months, maybe with different people on the podcast is just, how do we use adaptation to really educate and inspire and motivate people to reduce their carbon footprint? Nope, you hit it. 
You yeah. hit, that's what I want to do with this podcast, and I think I've not so directly been doing it, but that's really a pivot that I want to do that I, I think there's a case to be made, and it's just a happier story. Americans, even if it's going to get tough adapting to climate change, I think that notion appealing to people's sense of commitment and duty and honor, it's more of an aspirational goal that I think you can pitch to people versus the mitigation side, which again, to me, it's kind of reduced to like, you can't do this any longer. You're going to have to change your light bulbs. And I mean, of course, I yeah. think you need to do all that. But as a messaging device, I think adaptation, there's a, a real opportunity. And yeah, I want to use this podcast to make that case. Yeah. Yeah. It's America adapts, not, you know, America cuts back. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> that was my second choice. I, I, I don't know if people realize this. It, the, my original title was America cuts back and it's just, Tested terribly with uh, audience members, so <laughs> I went with America Dabs. Okay, That's all right. right. America suffers. America, America will make you pay. Um, <laughs> all right, so that that's some great insight. I don't, I don't want to go on too long, but probably have another a similar conversation I had with John with you. But any final thoughts about it? it again, for me, it was a wonderful conversation. But uh, yeah, you know, you, there's only so much you can get in. Yeah, you know, I um, one of the things floating around Facebook. Uh, yesterday was a little poll on the Washington Post where you could go in and you could indicate all the states that you've been in. And I was happy that over the course of my life, I've been in most states, um, maybe 46 or something like that. And so just a few states that I've never been in, one of which was Oklahoma. And so to hear him talk about some rural agricultural and, you know, animal husbandry areas of Oklahoma and find people who, um, you know, maybe they don't accept that climate change is a problem, but they're really into cheap, alternative, renewable energy. And where they have living memory of the Dust Bowl, you know, he talked about someone who I think was a kid during the Dust Bowl. And so there's real personal gut level understanding of how people can screw up things pretty badly and they want to avoid screwing things up that bad. So um, there were some hopeful, hopeful messages there in, in his reportage, I thought. No, definitely. I, I, I applaud him that, you know, it was his home state, Oklahoma, but that, <laughs> that'd be a tough assignment. Um, <laughs> all right. So I need to wrap this up. Any last parting thoughts before I wrap it up? No, that's it. It's all good right. to be back on. Now we'll get you on. I mean, we're, we're, I'm going to just for folks, we're going to start a new kind of segment that I, I've got a new name for, but we won't do it until next week. But Dan Ackerstein will probably be on with the three of us are going to be on having conversations frequently too. And I think if you listen to the year in review, I, I really love the chemistry between the three of us. There was the two of them like making fun of me and I think it worked really well. And You're so, an easy mark. Right. Exactly. Um, and just for folks out there, they, Dan was on last time and I got a little feedback on Dan. And if you have anything negative to say about Tim, please just go to the Facebook community page and just lay into the guy because he, he deserves it. So please, if when you listen to this. All right. On that note, this is America Adapts. Until next week, thanks for listening. That is a wrap for this week. Adapters, thanks again to John Sutter for coming on the podcast. What a fantastic conversation. I learned a ton about what it's like to communicate this complex subject of climate change to sometimes hostile audiences. And you can just tell the affection that, that John has for that sort of diversity of, of, of you know, person out there who, who who's in America and, and, and learning and 
struggling with this issue of climate change and you know he's done some international work and he's really put some things in perspective on what adaptation means across the globe not just here in the united states and thanks to tim for coming on and sharing his insight on our conversation tim always very interesting commentary and um on that note again if you are interested think about joining the facebook community group just look for america daps on facebook and there's a america daps facebook page too I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. And let me hear from you. I would love to hear from you about anything that's on your mind. And think about writing a review or subscribing to the podcast because that means every week it's a weekly podcast that the podcast will show up and you'll be able to follow things. And so let's see. Yeah, Next week, Dr. Amy Brady is going to come on and talk about cli-fi, climate change science fiction. It's this new emerging field, and I'm... I'm so excited to learn more about this. I'm not a big fiction reader, but I, I'm going to have to be. I'm going to have to learn about this this new genre that's kind of popping up, and hopefully we'll learn a lot about communicating climate change through through fiction writers. Exciting about that conversation. So on that note, anything else? No, I just want to thank all of you, those who are regular listeners. Thank you for tuning in every week. And new listeners, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, just, yeah, thanks for taking the time to listen to America Daps. You adapt, we adapt, America Daps. <laughs>